Without environmental justice, the clean energy transition will fail. The shift away from fossil fuels is just, it's not gonna achieve the support and scale necessary to address the climate crisis unless everyone is included in the process. Everyone is shouting for these solutions because everybody knows they're gonna benefit equitably from this clean energy transition. In order to address equity, we've got to start recognizing the value of all of these non-energy benefits. They equate to human beings. We learn when we listen. Welcome to Green Mike, an Edison Energy and Altonex Energy podcast where we invite you into today's most compelling conversations happening in clean energy and sustainability. Hey everyone, welcome to Green Mike. My name is Alana Knopp, Senior Content Writer at Edison Energy, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Seth Mullendore, President and Executive Director of Clean Energy Group, and Shelley Robbins, Project Director also at Clean Energy Group. So Clean Energy Group, or CEG, is a national nonprofit organization that fills a critical resource gap by advancing new energy initiatives and serving as a trusted source of technical expertise and independent analysis in support of communities, nonprofit advocates, and government leaders working on the front lines of climate change and the clean energy transition. And just throwing in a little something personal here, I had the pleasure of first meeting Seth when I was a renewable energy reporter. I interviewed him several times about the important work that CEG does around ensuring a truly just and equitable clean energy transition. So absolutely thrilled to have him and Shelly here. Thanks so much for joining me today at the Green Mic. So good to be here, Alana. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you, indeed. So I'm just going to dive right into my first question here, which is around CEG's work that is centered on advancing an equitable and just energy transition. So what does environmental justice and energy equity look like in the context of the work that you've been doing? This is a great place to start. So really all of our work starts with the community-led advocacy, what's, what's happening on the ground. It's in support of the work that's being done by frontline groups across the country. And our work is designed to help advance their priorities. So we work across a number of different areas in, in the environmental justice space. Our work is, of course, focused on the energy side. So, so energy justice, energy equity, is, as you called it. We work on equitable access to clean energy technologies, mainly solar and energy storage. We have a project called Resilient Power Project that's really focused on making sure that the communities that have been left out of the clean energy transition and are most in need of the benefits or, uh, of clean energy can have access and, and are prioritized in getting access to solar and energy storage for all the benefits it can provide. We also look at disproportionate harm of the fossil fuel system. That's really a lot of the focus of our, our phase out peakers work, which is, is looking at retiring dirty, polluting peaker plants in communities of color and low income communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the emissions from those power plants and replacing them with clean energy alternatives. Also making sure that communities are part of that process. So inclusive processes here. Great. Thanks for that overview, Seth. So I definitely want to ask you about the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, 
which claims to include $60 billion in environmental justice priorities to drive investments into disadvantaged and overburdened communities. Which provisions stand out to you? And how will these provisions need to be implemented to create real and maximum impact? Yeah, so just to, to start off, there's questions around that number, that, that $60 billion in environmental justice priorities. Yeah, I've seen, seen that number listed in a number of places. Different folks have different numbers for how much that investment really is. And ultimately, that's going to depend how, how these are actually enacted in time. Because you can set aside billions of dollars worth of funding, and that's that's great first step. But how they're actually put into practice depends on whether or not you're advancing in environmental justice. These programs and these funding opportunities, there has to be real intentionality in, in how they're designed. You have to make sure that the communities that they are intended to benefit are engaged throughout that process. So their priorities are part of how these are rolled out. So that it's not just these open opportunities that are available to everyone and may not reflect what the goals and values of the communities on the ground are. And there has to be transparency as well, so that the communities are, are deeply informed about the whole entire process, how to apply for it, and making it accessible so that they can apply when, when funds are available. So just for instance, one of the big numbers that goes into that $60 billion, there's I think $27 billion for, for a greenhouse gas reduction fund. That will go towards low-cost financing and technical assistance for clean, clean energy investments in, in disadvantaged communities. For one, disadvantaged communities isn't even defined in the legislation. So that's going to come down to states and, and federal agencies. They're probably going to be the ones defining that. So that there's a lot that goes into just defining what a disadvantaged community is. But there's questions about it's really not up to state and federal agencies to define what environmental justice looks like. That should be defined from the ground up. That needs to be part of what this process looks like. And that's going to come down again to how federal and state agencies implement this work. So, but to get to, to, to your question about what's transformational for our work is there's a number of provisions in there. Uh, I'll talk about some of them. Shelley's better positioned to talk about some of the other things. For our resilient power project work that I mentioned before, this is looking at solar and energy storage primarily for community serving institutions to be able to have energy resilience, backup power during emergencies, and to be able to get the benefits of clean energy, uh, lowering energy burdens, creating opportunities for ownership and wealth creation in environmental justice communities. So the investment tax credit, the fact that we've got 10 years at 30% for the investment tax credit, that's a huge deal. And in some cases, it's going to be higher than that, particularly for in, in projects in low-income communities and benefiting low-income communities. There's opportunities to get that up to 50% investment tax credit. The other thing is that the tax credit has been an issue forever because most of the entities that we work with are nonprofits or they're low-income members of the community that, that don't have an option to be able to take care of, to, to take advantage of the tax credits. For nonprofit entities, there's now a direct pay option, which means that they're going to be able to get payment whether or not they have a tax appetite. And that is hugely transformational for, for our work because without that, there's a whole bunch of financial engineering wizardry basically that goes into making sure that nonprofits can can access those tax credits that have really been such a, a huge catalyst for solar adoption. So being able to not have to deal with that and lose a lot of the value along the way is a huge deal. There is also transfer of credits 
Uh, there's still issues around households that don't have uh, tax liability to be able to uh, tap into and, and get the benefits for the investment tax credit directly. That was not resolved by this. But the fact that, that nonprofit institutions will be able to access those, that's transformational for our work. Shelley? Most of my work is in the peaker space, our phase out peakers program. And so I, I am really excited about many of the provisions in this, the, that 30% or more tax credit for battery storage. Batteries are sort of uniquely positioned to very easily replace peaker plants. They do a lot of the same, they can do a lot of the same things, black start, ramp, you know, quick, super quick ramping peaker plants. We can back up. Um, explain peaker plants a little bit. Those are the dirtiest plants typically on the grid, and they are they only come into play when there's a lot of stress on the grid, a lot of demand on the grid, and they ramp quickly up, and then they, you know, they basically they turn on and off quickly. But in doing so, and also because of their age, they're a lot dirtier. It's much harder if they even have emissions controls, it's very difficult for those emissions controls to even work. So they are very dirty. They're often located near load pockets in urban areas. That means in communities, so surrounded by neighborhoods. So that's replacing peaker plants with uh, non-combustion alternatives is, is a big part of what I do. So that 30% or more tax credit and even the direct pay option is really important. Direct pay is important because many peakers are owned by electric cooperatives or municipalities. So whereas the shareholder owned utilities do have tax liability and they can now take advantage of these tax credits to take a really hard look at their peaker fleet and hopefully prioritize those that are closest to environmental justice communities as the first ones to retire and replace with battery storage. So, but that completely changes the economics of fossil peaker versus battery. That's a huge win. The other, that 10 year timeline is huge. As Seth mentioned, that is a long runway for all sorts of things to happen. I went back and I looked at the good old EIA website for 10 years ago to see where we were. And one of the big stories was that uh, wind and there was a wind and sulfur battery test in Minnesota to test the ability of battery storage, basically to balance out the wind. So that's where we were 10 years ago. And, you know, consider where we are today. So that 10 year runway is, is tremendous. It, it inspires a lot of confidence in investment, in private investment, in alternatives and solutions in the supply chain and everything. So that was just huge. There are a lot of uh, incentives for non-combustion alternatives beyond batteries, all the energy efficiency, all the things that enable demand response programs that can help. They not only can replace peakers in communities, but they can then benefit the community members themselves by, you know, with energy efficiency, their home is safer, more comfortable with demand response. They can cut their bills, you know, if it's designed properly. So there are a lot of benefits beyond just turning off the spigot as it were. And then the other piece that I'm very excited about is the environmental and climate justice block grants, because as uh, Seth was speaking to procedural justice, to communities having a seat at the table, 
And under being a part of the process that historically has ignored them um, as these plants were placed in their communities, this money can be used to advance procedural justice with the replacement of peakers with non-combustion alternatives. So the, those are the parts that make me happy. Yeah, and as, as Shelley was talking there, the, the one thing that I failed to mention is the fact that the tax credit now applies to standalone storage is also a, a huge deal, not just for, for projects like peaker replacement, where often we're talking about, let's get rid of a power plant and put a big battery in, in its place, sometimes is, is the way to solve that problem. But for the millions of solar installations that happened without energy storage, there's always been this gray area with the tax law. Can you add storage to solar later on and, and get the tax credit? Now we don't have that uncertainty anymore. So for so many systems that are saying, oh, I'd really like to pair batteries with my solar system, or I just want to put in a battery. Now we have a path forward for those who to be able to, to, to get that tax benefit or direct pay. Definitely a lot to unpack there. These are obviously very significant provisions, but also, as you pointed out, Seth, still a lot of questions that still need to be answered. So you touched on peaker plants, so I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into that. I know Clean Energy Group has done a ton of research and disseminated an incredible amount of knowledge and information when it comes to peaker plants in or near disadvantaged communities. Can you provide an overview of this work, why it plays such an important role in CEG's work and mission, and some of your high-level findings as well? Yeah, we, we start, first started looking at, at peakers. It was probably around four years ago, and we were surprised because it was a, an area of an energy system that was kind of overlooked by a lot of organizations that were focused on, and very justifiably, coal was, was of course, a, the first big target, and then more kind of the, the base load gas plants, the, the ones that run all the time. Peakers weren't really focused on as much, but the, the fact is, when we, we looked at this, there are over a thousand peaker plants, fossil peaker plants, mostly oil and gas peaker plants across the country. It represents about 30% of the capacity of the fossil fuel fleet. So this is not a small drop in the bucket we're talking about. But it wasn't seen as the major climate problem. What it is, is it's a huge environmental justice problem. Because these peakers, these power plants tend to be less efficient than other baseload plants that are out there, particularly you know, the gas plants that are out there. They, they produce a lot more local emissions than those plants do when, when they're operating. Also, by and large, they are located much, much closer to where people live. Peakers kind of by definition are where the load is the highest, which tends to be population centers. So you see big clusters of peakers around urban population centers. These tend to be where you see environmental justice communities as well. When, when we looked at this, we have a tool called the, the Peaker Plant Mapping Tool that's based off of information the EPA put out through their, their power plants and neighboring communities mapping tool. Gives a lot of information about where these speakers are, how they operate, and it also includes demographic information, which we didn't have before easily accessible to us. When we dug into that, we found two-thirds of these speaker power plants are located in communities with a higher percentage of, of lower-income households. So that's the majority of the peaker fleet is located in low-income communities. The other big standout, well, two other big standouts. In, in this. One is that the communities that where there are the most people that are impacted tend to be the most racially diverse communities across the country. So it's not necessarily the vast majority of peakers are located in these urban communities, 
but where they are located have some of the highest percentages of people of color across the nation. We're talking about tens of millions of people that are impacted by the emissions from beaker plants. And a higher percentage of those are people of color than across the rest of the country. Not only that, the emissions from those can be on average 60% higher than the average emissions from, from the fleet. Uh, Shelly, you want to talk more about some of the, those health impacts and, and why that's, that's so important to our work? Sure. Peakers are any combustion, fossil fuel combustion is going to produce NOx, nitrogen oxides. Also with combustion is also PM 2.5 or very small particulate matter, which is 2.5 micrometers. And for comparison of that, why it's a problem, that size, the human hair is 50 to 70 micrometers. Your alveoli in your lungs are 200 micrometers. So PM 2.5, 200. So visualize that. That is why PM 2.5 is such a problem to human health. So the PM 2.5 is, is emitted directly, but it's also formed indirectly by NOx and also SO2 as well. And like things clump together and they form that particulate matter. So study after study, has come out over time, but particularly within the last year, several studies have come out demonstrating just how insidious PM 2.5 is within the body. It is responsible for, again, it enters the lungs, it goes into the body, there are neurological issues, um, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, renal failure, I think the um, like kidney disease rates are much higher in cities than uh, in, in other parts of the country. Of course, the ones we're used to, asthma, cardiac issues, the problems are just tremendous in the body. What we're used to hearing is like, oh, okay, combustion causes asthma. Okay, so somebody you know has asthma. Now it's much worse than that, and it cuts lives short. You know, if you've ever had a family member or a child who had an asthma attack, that is a terrifying thing. It reduces school days, it reduces work days. The impacts are borne by society. And that's something that I think people really need to think about. The, all, all these people who are around these plants who have uh, much higher levels of health problems, number one, it affects them, but it also, you know, the healthcare system, the schools, work, it affects everything, society has absorbed these impacts. While quite frankly, shareholders and you know private equity firms and the like, they have enjoyed the profits from the revenues that those peaker plants provide. And I think people really need to stop a minute and think about that. Thank you, Shelley. I really appreciate your breaking it down like that. Hearing from you certainly makes me realize, and I'm sure it makes our listeners realize as well, how serious this issue actually is. So zooming in a little bit, Clean Energy Group just released a report that examines the environmental justice and public health impacts of peaker plants in three U.S. cities, so Boston, Philadelphia, and Detroit. I know the report also provides several case studies on lessons learned from community-led opposition efforts in, th in those cities, as well as in New York City and New Orleans. Can you share your findings, lessons learned, and potential next steps? 
Sure. And I'll also say that in that report, we put that health information and we tried to make it very clear and illustrate it very clearly in the front of that. So if anybody has questions, they can go to the, the Pika Problem Report and get a lot more information and all of our background research and everything. So that's in there. One thing I did, well, we, we chose those three cities because we worked with our consulting partner, Stratagen, and we chose the three because they do have a higher incidence of polluting peakers close to what we might term environmental justice communities, low-income communities, communities of color. They were also in three different ISOs. We also take a look at that. Probably won't, don't want to get into that too much here, but those the transmission operators, they have different policies. That was another factor. But then within those cities, Stratagen pulled the basically all of the characteristics of the entire Peaker fleet in each city. And we looked more closely at the ones that have the highest impacts on low-income communities and communities of color. They aren't necessarily the dirtiest in the whole fleet, but they are situated, they are right next to the community of color or low-income communities. So we also we do have all the data for all of the peakers in each city in the report, but we focused in on those the ones having the biggest impact. Then I did you know we we have our data and I did a bit of sleuthing with Google Maps and Google Street View to you know you can go in and you can see okay what does this peaker look like within this community, and time and time again it is literally you know like Philadelphia is known for its row houses so, you know, it's wonderful row houses. And they're peaker right across the street from the row houses. They are literally right within the neighborhoods. I found peakers right next to schools in Detroit, although I've seen, I've seen them in other places too. So I don't want to single out Detroit, but there's a major peaker site right next to an elementary school in the playground, um, next to ball fields, next to parks. They're everywhere people don't realize what they are. They don't realize what on a hot summer afternoon when they're outside, you know, playing ball or, or you know, walking the kids or whatever, that's sending out pollution right next to them. So that basically we sort of uh, personalized, we, you know, we, we personalized the peakers and sort of brought them home as it were. The other thing, I saw that really surprised me was, um, particularly in Philadelphia and Detroit, there were a couple of neighborhoods in Philadelphia at South Philly and in Detroit at Springwells. They're wonderful, classic urban grid neighborhoods bookended by peakers with like three, three and a half miles between them. So when we look at peaker health impacts at sort of the one mile radius and then at the three mile radius. Well, this is a, these are two vibrant, diverse communities in these cities that have a peaker on either side. They, you know, there's, there's no escaping. They can't get away from these emissions. Those are the kinds of situations where we want to provide the information that communities can use to get involved now that utilities have financial incentives and tools to shut these things down and the technology's there. We want to to provide a way for the, to show which ones are the worst, why they're the worst and what they're doing and why they need to, why they need to go away. Just to circle back on, on something that Shelly said there, you know, it's raising that awareness. So a lot of people, you know, people know what a nuclear plant looks like, right? You, you can think of nuclear plant and have the, the big stacks in your head. 
coal plants, you know, same kind of thing, big gas plant. But peakers are different. Some of these, you look at them and you just see a fenced off area. And it looks like there's a box there. You know, maybe smoke comes out of it every now and then. But people don't know what it's there. In, in New York City, where we're doing a ton of work, they're sitting on barges. People have no idea that these things are, are out there and that they're having such a negative impact on their communities. So just to talk a little bit about your question about next steps as, as well. As I said, we've been doing a lot of work in New York City. We're part of what's called the Peak Coalition there, which is partnership with New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, with Uprose and the Point, which are two community-based organizations, and, and New York Lawyers for Public Interest. So we've been fighting peakers there for, for almost three years with, with that group, and we're having some major successes, which is fantastic. That's it. That transition is actually happening. Some of those peakers are shutting down, and they're transitioning to batteries. We just did a, a study this year with the New York Power Authority, in collaboration and consultation with Peak Coalition, where they found that they could replace each one of their peakers with four-hour batteries. It's technically possible, would not uh, you know, jeopardize the system, but would have the same performance that you need uh, for their modeled out uh, as the system transitions to, to cleaner resources. So the, the work that we're doing next steps and, and, and in these cities is we're really talking to the groups on the ground that are already doing this work, that are already opposing peakers, and try and find ways that we can help support their advocacy. What the Clean Energy Group does is we are the technical support team. So when folks don't have that expertise in-house, don't have that capacity, we're there to help try to provide that, to help do assessments and, and to help them figure out what do alternatives look like. So we're working with groups across the country that are doing that, not just these cities. And we also welcome opportunities to work with others or working with the owners of these as well. If they're thinking about and we want to close this down, we're happy to help them figure that out and, and, and transition to a, a cleaner path forward. Yeah. So that's actually a perfect segue into my next question, which is, while the report does not recommend specific replacement options for particular power plants, it does note that non-combustion technologies exist as solutions to the peaker problem. So that's battery storage, renewable energy, transmission improvements, energy efficiency, among others. Can you walk us through the work that Clean Energy Group is doing around some of these potential solutions across the country? Certainly. And, and there are a number of different options for, for replacing speaker plants. The, the report that we put out with, with Peak Coalition called Fossil Fuel Endgame looked at this for, for New York City's fleet of, of fossil peaker plants. And it was partially batteries, it was partially solar, offshore wind played a huge part for, for New York City. Transmission is increasingly becoming a solution that's being implemented there. It's just opening up the lines so that more energy can flow into New York City, as well as efficiency and, and demand side resources. So there's this whole suite. But as far as the, the work that we're doing, there's a couple of things that I'll, I'll mention. You know, one, it gets back to that resilient power project work. We're working with a lot of groups on the ground implement solar and battery storage. And the more of that you have in the grid, particularly around these load pockets where you've got the need for a peaker plant because you have these, these peak energy meet, needs that, uh, that can't be served by outside of that region, the more local generation that you have in those areas, the better you're going to be able to transition away from those. Uh, you know, solar is going to provide that power and then batteries provide that flexibility. So we're working with We've worked with hundreds of groups on, on the ground, community serving institutions to install solar and battery storage. That's part of, of the work we're doing on the ground. Specifically on the peaker side, 
what we're, we're doing is, is working with a consultant. We work with a consultant called Stratagen, usually to look at that technical assessment for what alternatives can look like. Often, the utility will say, oh, look at my demand here. It's growing. I can see that in a few days out of the year, I'm starting to stress my, uh, my capacity to meet that need. I need a gas peaker. I need a gas power plant there. That's wrong. That's the wrong approach. What they should say is, I've got a need for peak power here. I need to do something about this high level of power, and I should look at the suite of alternatives to be able to do that. What they need to start defining is the need instead of, oh, I need a gas peaker. So our work is to try to help provide those alternative solutions. And a lot of what we look at is batteries, because that's what one thing that, that people can understand is it's kind of a one-to-one trade-off. So the technical assessments often look at, at batteries, but there's a whole host of different things. And we're trying to get the energy system and, and the providers of energy to start reconceptualizing how they articulate their needs so that they identify the problem of, I've got too much power need at this time for what my system can do, instead of just saying, oh, I know I need a gas peaker, and I'm going to put that in because that's something that's worked for decades. Shelly, talk about some of the other work we're doing. Yeah, in the in the policy space, with the Inflation Reduction Act, this might actually become even more important now and because, you know, originally a big barrier, uh, particularly for nonprofits, it would have been cost. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to go a long way toward addressing that that situation. So what we have left are policy barriers. One big one, it's not a place where we work, but people will identify with it, is a lot of states don't allow community solar. So yeah, there's a lot of money for community solar in the IRA, but there are going to be a lot of states that can't utilize that. So again, that's not a space we work in a lot. Other, a lot of others do, but it's kind of an example people can really understand. One space we do work, for example, is, you know, we've um, like ISO New England has, uh, which is the, the grid operator, there might be issues with like if, a, if an entity wants to take a, a gas plant offline and replace it with batteries, there's the issue of injection rights and their place in line. What we're hearing is they might actually lose their place in line and go to the back of the line. That's a policy problem. That's not a real, that's not a real problem. So those are the kinds of things that, that still need to be addressed. One area where we've uh, been very successful and done a lot of work, are my colleague Todd Olinsky-Paul has done a lot of work in New England, uh, getting battery uh, storage considered in energy efficiency programs. And that was you know, really important to sort of open up that space and let batteries begin to participate in serving the needs of the grid. He was uh, instrumental in developing a tool called Connected Solutions that's used in several New England states. And that offers incentives to residential and commercial owners of behind-the-meter battery storage to let the utility basically tap their battery during times of peak demand on the grid. We'd love to see expansion of that concept. Um, we you know, support the development of virtual power plants. We support these things through, through comments, by providing guidance uh, as part of technical working groups and that sort of thing. So I've been very anxious to ask you this next question, Seth and Shelley, and that is how critical a role can the private, the corporate sector play in advancing energy justice and energy equity? Yes, I say that you know there's there's two sides to this. There's 
there's the good and the bad. On the good side, the communities that we work with, ideally, we would have just a battery and, and solar and every vulnerable household that's out there, everybody that's dependent on electricity for, for their medical needs or for, for keeping comfortable on a hot day or keeping warm on a cold day, that's where we'll end up. And I do hope that we're able to achieve that. In some cases, it's not, it's not always feasible. And even if we do achieve that, that may not be enough to be able to provide all the power that we need for the, the energy system. The groups that we work with on the ground, they realize that this is going to take big solutions and small solutions. So there are a lot of reasons why replacing a power plant with a large battery system is a very good thing, even though this might not provide all of the suite of benefits for communities that say having it in a community center might. There's a lot that could, can be said there. So what can, can the private sector do? It, it's really a matter of, of changing the approach. So instead of just coming into a community and saying, here's what we're going to do, tell them about what the plan is ahead of time. Be transparent in you know, what this means for the communities. Are there going to be jobs lost if we take this power plant away and, 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 and put in a battery? Is there opportunities for local job creation? How could this impact the community? What's it going to mean for, for taxes for the community as well? What we've seen again and again is even if it's not the, the exact solution that a community might want, if they had an infinite number of possibilities to end up with, there's a real appreciation for that engagement and that transparency. And it becomes a collaborative process instead of this top-down approach where a company's just coming in with another thing that is going to be probably extractive of the local community and certainly is going to be perceived as extractive without that transparent process. That's the big on the, on the good side is working with communities to inform them and get their feedback and adjust projects when you can to be able to align what they, the outcomes are for their community values and priorities. Um, just to touch on the, what we see as the very bad side. Uh, Shelley mentioned private equity firms at, at one point here. What we've seen is, is a lot of private equity firms have become the bottom feeders of the energy system. They come in and they buy up the dirtiest resources that are out there that other folks that are trying to clean up their system are trying to get rid of an offload and they squeeze out the last little bit of revenue, the last penny out of these while just devastating the communities around them. So we need to end that practice and we need to hold these firms accountable for what they're doing because there's a lot less oversight for private equity than there are for say an uh, investor owned utility. We need to, to close that loophole and make sure that private sector is not the ones that are exacerbating the problem and keeping the fossil fuel system alive to the very last bitter end beyond what our planet and these communities have the capacity to absorb. I can add to that. I would say to those uh, from what I call the legacy energy space, this likely is not your comfort zone, but you need to get out of your comfort zone <laughs> because that's where innovation happens. And we're in a moment in time where innovation is absolutely critical. It's critical not only for our survival, but it's, it's crit critical for companies' survival in the clean energy space. So get uncomfortable for a while. 
the communities that have been impacted have been uncomfortable for decades. If they take the time and effort to meet impacted communities where they are, then I think their chances of surviving and thriving are much greater on, you know, it's win-win for both sides. So if you came face-to-face with a representative from the corporate sector, a, a stakeholder, you had a very short time to tell this person why energy and environmental justice is critical to include in any business strategy. So think of it as an elevator pitch. What would you say? Sure. So I, I feel like we, we covered a bit of this in the last question, but it's worth reiterating. And then I, I'll say I have, I have two answers to this question. And, and first is that it's the right thing to do. Environmental justice communities, they are environmental justice communities because they've been the dumping ground for dirty resources for decades. The energy sector owes a huge debt to these communities. And environmental justice demands that they are compensated for past and present harms through inclusive processes and and equitable distribution of the benefits to clean energy transition. So that's answer number one. And I realize that's not going to resonate with everyone. So my second answer is more aimed at appealing to the practical business side of the corporate stakeholders. Uh, And that's this, that without environmental justice, the clean energy transition will fail. The shift away from fossil fuels is just it's not going to achieve the support and scale necessary to address the climate crisis unless everyone is included in the process. Everyone is shouting for these solutions because everybody knows they're going to benefit equitably from this clean energy transition. So without upfront, transparent and inclusive engagement, proposed developments are going to run into opposition. Because why should a community welcome a project if it doesn't align with their values and priorities? Why should they support it if there's no tangible benefit to their residents? If they're not getting jobs or they're seeing a reduction in pollution or or opportunities to build local wealth, why should they support your project? So to succeed, companies need to reach out where they're planning to do these developments. They need to clearly explain what they're going to do including positive and negative impacts that could be a part of it. And they have to take the time to listen, respond to, and adjust their plans based on community concerns and priorities. Simply put, environmental justice is an investment in the success of these projects, and it should be a core part of any business strategy. And I'm going to add a term that we haven't, one that I use a lot, but we, we haven't even uttered today, non-energy benefits. Utilities and firms that work in this space need to recognize that non-energy benefits, you know, whether they are the value of, they can range from utility benefits that aren't necessarily related, related to energy, such as decreased billing costs for accounts that are overdue, that sort of thing, to just the societal improvement when communities that are able to build wealth and build stability. These are not a fantasy. And I would say that in order to address equity, we've got to start recognizing the value 
of all of these non-energy benefits, they equate to human beings. And we need to start putting the human beings back into the, well, put them in the equation in the first place. They've never been there, so we need to put them into the equation. You simply can no longer operate in this space without doing that. Thank you so much, Seth and Shelley, for joining me today. Really meaningful, impactful conversation. Always a pleasure. And please promise you'll come back. You have an open invitation. I would be delighted to come back. <laughs> yes. It's, it's always such a pleasure speaking to you and you know, giving us the opportunity to talk about our work in this space. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. See you next time at The Green Mic. Find Green Mic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts.